This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Anna Zelnina, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Hannah Hilbrand about her new book, Housing in the Margins, Negotiating Urban Formalities in Berlin's Allotment Gardens. This book was published by Wiley in 2021 as part of the Iger Studies in Urban and Social Change book series. Hannah Hilbrand, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really delighted to be here. We're also very happy to have you here. And maybe you could start uh, our interview by saying a few words about yourself. Of course. So I'm currently an assistant professor in social and cultural geography at the University of Zurich in, in Switzerland. And um, I'm working across a broad range of topic in urban geography, which link questions of housing, questions of displacement, questions of finance, and questions of uh, the Eurocentrism of urban theory. Um, so I've started my research looking at really these housing struggles in the everyday that the book is about. Um, and through this work, I've started thinking about how to translate topics and theories from the South into European theory, um, and that has accompanied me across a range of methodological questions, which I guess we will be talking about today. Now, how do you translate topics? How do you actually do theory from Europe without being Eurocentric? Um, and I've taken this work on um, informal housing further into different areas of housing and then looked at cases of displacement in Germany where the role of financial players has been particularly important. Um, so just very recently, I've looked at a process of eviction in Dortmund um, where we've asked questions about who takes responsibility for these evictions, how is the state involved in actually protecting the tenants, um, and then this questions of question of finance um, and the role of global finance in questions of displacement has brought me also in a very different subject area, but again linking the same questions. And another project that I'm currently looking at, I'm looking at the ways in which global climate finance is actually um, shaping city 
cities in Mexico and in India. Um, so in this project, um, together with uh, Fritz Julius Grafe, we are studying how um, different global initiatives um, from the climate finance sector are trying to get cities to actually shape or change their bureaucratic structures so that investments can take place easier in these cities, so that global finance is channeled into these cities. Um, and again, here and across all the other um, subject areas that I've mentioned, um, I'm looking at these questions of how these structures are negotiated in the everyday, how urban actors, financial actors, actors from the bureaucracy actually um, tr try to um, negotiate how this change takes place and how we understand state structures and bureaucratic change through that. And then there's another cross-cutting topic that also appears in the book or that starts from the book. And this is this question of the Eurocentrism of urban theory, which also plays out here. So in terms of global finance, how do we actually think about global finance from a more kind of decentered perspective where we don't take the kind of elite understanding of what finance is that comes very much from the global south, but we think much more about what different understandings of finance from elsewhere could also be about. So I guess these are the big three streams of work that I'm currently working on and I'm um, yeah I'm, I'm I'm happy to expand on them when we get more into the details of the book because I think they start from the book in many ways definitely we'll get there but maybe first to introduce our listeners to the allotment gardens and Berlin and its place in your research agenda maybe you could tell us a few words of what this book is about in terms of the subject and your empirical material Yeah. Um, so the book started um, well from this interest in, in how you take um, questions of informality into a European city and the European city that I happen to be most familiar with because I'd lived there for 20 years is Berlin. And um, I started thinking about what a good case would be in Berlin and finding that a lot of people had already studied informality in relation to, I guess, more conflictual situations, more public situations, um, like, for instance, um, a lot of squatters or um, uh, so the, what in Germany is Wagenburgen, no? so these encampment sites um, where the questions of informality had been, I guess, um, more overtly political. And what I was interested in was finding a case um, where we could study a bit more how also, well, the lower middle classes, a different different like colors of politics now also actors that weren't struggling for kind of left housing politics but also acting informally um, so the case of allotments uh, like came somehow across I me mean, like how I do it's always interesting to think about how you discover your case no um, and I guess I was studying um, I was studying at UCL in London Uh, at the Open University in London, sorry. Um, <clears throat> I did my master's at UCL and I, I, I came back into Berlin on one of my first visits back after having this master's and you just enter Berlin and you drive across these like vast areas of allotments. And also, I mean, Berlin is the allotment city of Germany. Um, it's just a city where allotments play a big role. It's said that every sixth Berliner has somehow a relation to allotment, knows a relative who is in an allotment. So it's a big 
topic there. And I think this question of an informal inhabitation is also particularly strong in Berlin. So in other cities in Germany, other cities in Europe, people don't house in allotment gardens. But in Berlin, there is not a huge number of people, but in a reasonable, like, I mean, it was big enough to actually make a case out of it and study it, no? a number of people actually inhabiting these allotment gardens. Um, and maybe to give listeners a bit of an idea of what the allotments look like. Um, so you have to imagine um, there are different colonies in Berlin. That's what they are called in the local speech. So um, different uh, units of allotments where different plots are together in um, kind of almost small villages and you have small allotment sheds on them and they are legally up to 24 square meters, but a lot of them are bigger, so they actually allow for some, in, some inhabitation. Some of them are 34, some of them are 40, up to 50 square meters. Um, because of historical reasons we might be speaking about later on, they're connected to water and to other infrastructures, which actually makes it possible to live in there. They're mostly in the peripheries of Berlin, and there's also some more central ones, so they're spread out across the city. Yeah, I guess that gives a picture, no? It does, definitely. Um, I kind of want to stay a bit longer with this um, idea of north and south that you uh, mentioned earlier. Uh, so how does Berlin fit in this picture? Because um, I think it also relates to the discussion in urban studies on informality and formality. So where does your research fit in those famous dichotomies? I mean... <laughs> I guess my research tries to make the case for actually giving up those dichotomies. No, I think thinking about the global north and the global south much more as a relational category makes much more sense. And I guess my research tries to contribute to that. Um, and Berlin also is an interesting case, you know, because you could also argue it's a city of the global east. Um, it's one of the poor houses of um of Germany, it's not a very rich city, even though if Germany might be relatively rich in comparison to other European countries, but also that depends on what you look at now. So I guess these categories in this research don't make so much sense if you think about them in a more territorial sense of where Berlin is located. Um, but what I what I was interested in is thinking much more about um, how Berlin has been researched, no? and Berlin has been researched much more through the lenses of a European city, um, the categories of a European city. Um, and what, what I was interested in is then thinking about how do you bring new understandings to the topics that are like currently studied when thinking about Berlin, when thinking through the lenses of places elsewhere? No? And um, I lived in Mexico City for quite a long time. So this question of informality was something that was super big there. Everything that had to do with regeneration was like viewed under the lens of informality. So I came with that in the back of my mind and I kind of yeah, thought about like, if what if you bring the questions that come from this research there into Berlin and the housing debates in Berlin. So for me, it's much more about that. It's about this like question of translating different themes and perspectives into new areas of research, um, where we, then we can start questioning our understandings. No, and I mean, I guess um, what I was trying to do is think about like how certain understandings we have about, for instance, the state. We have about formality. We have also about like how we understand that housing functions. We take them to be universal. No, we. This is the question of Eurocentric theory. You know, it's the assumption that um, this, these categories that we use are actually universal. Um, and then when you start thinking about um, 
these ideas with the categories from elsewhere, with categories that other researchers elsewhere have thought about. No, it brings up, it opens up these new perspectives. And I guess in the book, I, I try to do that in relation to thinking about the state. How do we understand the state if we think about these um, questions of informality and also the questions of housing? No, if we think about housing and the discussions we're currently having in Europe about housing, informal housing is typically not a topic we are touching on. Um, so what does an informality perspective add to these housing debates? No, I think that was the question I was, I was tackling. So um, how would you, um, what, what is your vision of this uh, relationship between formality and informality and how do you approach it in the book? Because uh, even in the title, you have the concept of urban formalities instead of a more trendy informality that you often see in the titles of different research projects. So what, what is your vision, your theoretical contribution to this discussion? Yeah, um, I guess even in, in these more trendy discussions or when people use the label of informality, I think by now in critical urban theory, we have quite an open conversation about how difficult the topic and the term of informality is because of this dichotomy it inscribes, no? and also because of the political uses of informality. I mean, informality has been used across so many regeneration projects to delegitimize populations, um, to actually move them out of um, some realm of like righteousness. No? And I think, I think this term has by now, um, across a lot of the urban literature, been really complicated by, um, by these like critiques of the term. Um, and, and even... I guess um, even the newer literature that picks up Ananya Roy's work, for instance, or the literature that picks up kind of on informality is something that is done by state actors, um, where state actors use the means of informality to actually delegitimize population and takes that like as a much more like on, on the basis of much more political understanding, what is actually done with it um, is critical towards this kind of dichotomy in which informal and formal operates. Um, I decided on putting formality in the title and actually working with formality because I was interested in understanding how the state is actually practiced through informal channels, so to say. So to think about this realm of what is typically considered formality, you know, the state through the notion of negotiation, the notion of room for maneuver, to think really about how formality is actually produced and to think about that production as kind of an open-ended project, you know, something that is equally negotiated, equally flexible as we do think about that in relation to formality. Now that doesn't... Um, that doesn't take that problematic away that formality and informality are still those binaries, no? And it, I think I also use the notion of informality in the book because I want to make reference to this debate on informality because as much as we witness things in the real world, it's also a concept, no? And it's a concept that does certain things. So I think it's important to, um, to, to think about that history of the concept and what you do with it. But my, my attempt with the book was really um, to start from an understanding of the state and think about how we understand the state in everyday practice as something that is really negotiated and understand this notion of formality as something that is negotiated, that is like brought about through these everyday struggles of even people in the bureaucracy, across bureaucracy and civil society, and to question that, to make that the empirical object of investigation. Even if the practice is in focus, 
these housing practices that I look at and how they negotiate, they may typically be under the label of informality, but discussing them as, I guess, the negotiation of formality helped me to kind of put that notion of what is formal into question. Yeah, and I think you do a very good job of subverting those dichotomies and kind of usual frameworks in your book, because it's not just the informality versus formality, north versus the south, but also this idea that different players are involved and it's a negotiation, it's a constant interaction of different players that bring about those social phenomena that you talk about. So I wanted to kind of go back a bit and talk about the empirical uh methods that you use to collect your materials and to uh, kind of uh, substantiate your theoretical claims? Mm -hmm. How do you do it? Um, so my research is based on um, Dorothy Smith's understanding of institutional ethnography. So I look at institutions, but I look at them from the everyday perspective of multiple actors that are involved in these institutions um, and how they experience rules and how they also work with those rules in an everyday perspective. So there's other people call it the people state or anthropologies of the state. So I look at how the state is really made close up in the everyday. And how I did that was by looking not only at those people that are typically associated with being state actors and implementing rules, but I look at uh, quite a couple of groups that are involved in regulating housing in these allotment sites that I look at. So there are, um, for instance, to start with, the allotment holders who themselves negotiate rules, but they also implement rules by regulating their peers, their neighbors. They also put those rules in place. So they also understand them at people who, in a certain sense, also put the state in place. No? And then there's a particularity to those allotments that they are governed by their own system of administration. So they have um, a mayor, so to say, of these allotment colonies, and they also implement state rule, but they also implement their own rules, no? they implement the local association and the club rules that they adhere to. Um, I looked at people in the local bureaucracy um, and I looked at people at different levels of the, uh, at the administration below the local bureaucracy, so at the level of the district. Um, <clears throat> and I wanted to look at how they implement um, rules without kind of having these pre-assumptions about who would be doing what kind of agency, you know, um, thinking about the bureaucrats as those who kind of like strictly enforce state rule um, and the people in the allotments that actually house in the allotments as those who kind of um, are the insurgents and struggle against state rule. Um, but my, my interest was also thinking about how um, actually the allotments holders themselves exclude others by implementing very strict rules where people in the bureaucracy might actually be opening up rules and actually changing rules as they go along according to their normative understanding, no, as like critical humanistic actors which understand these situations from the basis of their own positioning and, well, sometimes just thinking it's okay that people live there, no, and I'm going to make openings for people to live there. Um, 
And I think this is what informality opens up. No, it opens up a view actually on these everyday productions of the state where you think about different actor groups. And this is something that I also want to stress, which is there to learn from the literature of informality in the South. No, I mean, there's a lot of work where people have looked at um, uh, how different actor groups beyond the state, um, so m these men in the middle or civic associations, how they also implement like very rigid institutional roles but they're actors beyond the state but they participate in actually like forming social agreements now according to which we live um, so I think this is one of the learnings that if we if we think about what can looking from the south onto state perspective in Europe do is actually like having a wider opening onto the actors and their different multiple roles in which they implement state rule Well, then could you maybe list those players involved and what their positions are and how what, what tools they have to negotiate this informality, formality, boundaries and kind of recreate the state? So who are these people, groups, institutions, who's involved? Of course, yeah. Um, so... In let's imagine like in a very normal housing situation in the allotment gardens. No, it's um, maybe for listeners to understand a bit better. There's some of the colonies in the outskirts of Berlin where about up to 50 people might be housing, but typically those would be allotment colonies with around maybe 30 plots. And most people are just gardeners. They're just really, really normal gardeners. Um, and even amongst those uh, 50 uh, inhabitants or allotment dwellers, as they call them, there might be some people who stay overnight just once in a while. And there might be some people who really house there permanently. And also this might be because of very, very different situations. And then in one of those colonies, we would have one head of an allotment, head of a, an association who would be like a mayor for these 300 people and that mayor would in turn adhere to the rules of the district association of the allotment holders. So these would be like a typical club structure you know, like in, in almost every other association. Um, and then there would be people in the local district, people on the side of the city and their responsibility would actually be to make sure that people adhere to the formal rules of the state to not house in these allotments. So just to say this very clearly, this is forbidden. Um, there are a lot of exceptions which are historical. So some people are actually legal or inhabiting the allotment gardens legally. Um, but for most people, it's really in this realm of some of the things they do are legal. So for instance, staying overnight is legal, um, but then staying two weeks is not really legal anymore. No, So it's really in this gray zone of depending on what you do. So, and then if you think about what kind of governing work all these different actors do, um, we can start, for instance, with people in the district association you know, who um, have the formal rules. And the trouble here is that often these rules don't really apply to what people are doing on the ground. You know, so, for instance, I said earlier, the houses in this allotment, in this imaginary allotment colony would have to be only 24 square meters, but then the house itself is like 40 square meters. So they enter into negotiations around what you do with the house. No, they can't possibly ask people to build a 24 square meter house. Um, this would mean that they would have to like tear the house down and build something new. Um, but then they go maybe to the head of this club association. They ask, well, what if there's a change maybe in this ownership of the plot? Couldn't we say that actually we get rid of one shed um, and then maybe 
the house afterwards only has 34 square meters. And then that person would negotiate, no? It would say, well, yes, but the shed might be really necessary for that person to actually garden. So can't we maybe like get use of this other, uh, other position? And then the allotment holders themselves would be involved in the negotiation, thinking about like, how can I make best use of, um, well, uh, the space that I have for the purpose that I have. And this is around very small material things. No, it's around like using your chimney or um, the rules um, around how much time you can actually spend in the allotments. Um, and, and, and then, of course, we have allotment holders themselves getting involved in the regulation of other allotment holders. Um, and I think here we also get into the question of difference and power that you see through these structures now. Um, so uh, you have to imagine these spaces as majority white, uh, traditional German. So there's also like very xenophobic stereotyping involved towards implementing these rules. You know, so who enters and who's actually allowed to stay is often decided by a majority in the colonies. So they implement very rigid rules around who else can house if they're already housed and if the people that try to come into the allotment colonies and also want to dwell. Well, they might be like implementing rules that they themselves don't adhere to. Now we have these, and so we have a negotiation amongst um, actually people in situations of dwelling implementing rules, state actors also implementing rules. And then, of course, I don't want to picture this as something that is solidly decided on this everyday basis. No, we also have to account for the Berlin housing market, which is really under a lot of strain at the moment. Berlin is in a deep, deep housing crisis, and that means that there's a lot of pressure also in the allotment gardens because of people trying to actually find accommodation there. So the people within the allotment gardens, they themselves kind of want to make sure that not so many people house there because this might actually threaten their own housing situation for the few people that live there. So there's also, um, I mean, beyond this, uh, I guess, people's understanding of these everyday negotiations, I think we also have to account for these like larger political economic structures that help how the, these negotiations actually become possible or not. So how does it actually relate to Berlin's housing crisis? It's a very famous concept. I think many people are aware of the specific situation in the Berlin's housing market. But how does your research kind of fit in that discussion, if at all? So the question of how the Berlin housing crisis is playing out in the garden is an interesting one because it's not as direct as you would think. So let me just go a bit back to when I started this fieldwork in 2011. I entered the allotment gardens really still with a question that was not so much about housing because people in Berlin were still thinking about whether or not it would be necessary to build. So even if the global financial crisis had already turned into really a crisis of the housing market, that wasn't as pronounced in Berlin yet when I started. And it wasn't a question that was really uh, at the forefront of my research yet. But then across the years, and I was continuing to work on the allotments. It was really clear that it was impossible to look at the allotment gardens and then this question of informal housing without actually accounting for the crisis. So I went into uh, my interviews and I tried to get more information on how did the situation change for them as a result of the increasing tensions on the housing market, as a result of the displacements that Berlin was, um, was experiencing. And my interviewees, told me that they had 
thought that this is not there yet, that um, the situation was not as severe as um, not that severe that they could actually notice that the crisis is playing out in the gardens. But I, across the interviews, found a lot of ways in which I did feel that this question of the housing crisis had changed how people live. And I want to give a couple of examples. Um, so, for instance, one way in which um, I really noticed that people were experiencing on the, let's call it the formal, the normal market, um, that they could no longer in part stay in their apartment because of displacement, um, was that people were actually accommodating that they had to reduce their living space, for instance, in the formal market by expanding what they were doing in the gardens. So just to give you an example, um, I interviewed a couple which had been displaced towards the outskirts. They were now living in smaller space. They had to accommodate where they had previously had two bedrooms. And now, for instance, the husband stayed oftentimes the nights in the allotment hut. So they're kind of really expanding um, their living space into the gardens because they had reduced their living space in the formal market as a result of um, the housing crisis. Another way in which it became really noticeable to me was in the ways in which people weren't so easily entering the allotments as gardeners anymore. So as I as I said before, there's a governance system set up around who gets the plots. Um, and so when people apply for a plot as normal gardeners, not as dwellers, no, I mean, um, as, as really normal allotment gardeners, um, they're typically interviewed. And then, for instance, the gardeners that interview them, they make sure to check if people have an intention to dwell in the gardens. So the overall pressure on the housing situation and the fact that more people actually think about alternative ways of housing has resulted in the gardens and actually a protection system in which the gardeners that already have housing make sure that this housing situation isn't endangered. And now, just just I don't want to exaggerate the housing numbers here. No, I previously said that there's a couple of colonies where there's a lot of people. There's also a couple of colonies in which there's maybe only one or two gardeners. Um, maybe there's none. No, I mean there's a lot of colonies in which people just garden. Um, but it's quite certain that because of these pressures on the housing market and also on land in Berlin, that's a super important topic, that land is now being like thought of as, well, the solution to the housing crisis. No, we need to build more. We need to regenerate. We need to these spaces has led to the, well, to the gardeners being much more cautious about what they actually do in the gardens. Because, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very, very open debate that a lot of people now say, well, let's just build housing in the gardens. And as much as, um, as much as uh, it is visible that people would actually be housing in the gardens, these spaces become more endangered for other purposes. No, So I guess people in the allotments, because of the crisis, try really to make sure that what they do looks according to standard. Even it might be not, no, but a situation in which you get more and more people actually housing in the gardens would endanger housing for the few people that are already there. So these are just some of the ways in which Maybe the crisis doesn't openly play out in the gardens. We don't have a lot of people now suddenly housing in the gardens. There's not like camps of people who have been displaced from the from the rental market. But there's all sorts of ways in which you kind of hear the echoes of this crisis in this garden. And this is just to make another point. Um, this is also one of the ways in which I think it's important to think about informal housing in the context of in the context of 
for instance, displacement studies or studies of um, the normal housing studies debate where informality doesn't play out so much, no, is because these understandings of how people house informally also tell us about how people um, move between these, like, I don't want to call them spheres, no, but move in between um, the allotment gardens and the formal rental market, how those two spheres are connected, um, how people in the formal rental market or in the normal rental market, how they actually accommodate their new situations somewhere else. So I think displacement studies can learn quite a lot about like how these um, different ways of finding gardens actually resolve or don't resolve or lead to more precarity when we also look at these informal housing situations and account for them as part of the normal housing debate, no? Because I think what we currently have is really a debate in which informality is discussed as a topic of governance of the state. Really, this exceptional topic which had to do with migration and which has to do with maybe some cities in southern Europe, but not really Europe yet, no? And then there's housing studies looking at the normal rental market. But by bringing these two together, I think we have we get a much much better picture of how people negotiate between different housing conditions. Right. I think it's a very important um, point that you just made. But I wanted to link it to another question that I had uh, for you. And this is the one about temporality and your kind of historical chapter in in uh, mm-hmm. uh, in the book, which doesn't feel like a, just a required historical context. It feels like it's it actually means something for the condition of the housing market of the allotment today. So maybe you could also give us a brief introduction into the past of uh, allotment gardens and housing in those gardens uh, in Berlin. Of course. So this chapter doesn't only have the purpose of um, kind of contextualizing the practices I witnessed today historically, but I start from an understanding of how people first housed in allotment gardens where allotments come from to think also a bit about um, this claim that uh, there's kind of this uh, progress towards modernization and formality is at the end of that progress. And that's then where we end when we have um, the normal development of cities. No? And, um, and in Berlin, you really see how formality and informality, if you want to use those terms, no? how, uh, how they are really intertwined across historical development of allotments across 120 years and how people um how how people didn't didn't formalize or how the market didn't formalize with kind of the years but it also went back always to situations in which more people were housing in the allotments and then less people were housing in the allotments so i look at why that is the case and which periods that is the case um but just a bit of, uh, to start a bit from the broader picture um so Berlin's allotments, most of them were founded in these periods of turbo growth um, at the end of the 19th century, so around uh, 1872s and then up to the end of the 19th century. Berlin grew immensely as a result of industrialization and the uh, German Prussia, uh, the Prussian French War and uh, a lot of historical developments. And, um, and in these periods, um, 
with the uh, increasing housing stock that was built then, people started thinking about how to integrate these notions of a healthier city, a greener city. Um, a lot of the first allotment movements were really also about um, how to actually uh, bring some of the former kind of rural practices into the city, um, about like nutritional self-sufficiency, how um, a lot of the poverty gardens, as they were then called, were really also about like people growing their own potatoes, no? Um, but at the same time, from the beginning, this was also a story about housing because um, migrants were coming, rural migrants were coming into Berlin um, and they were thinking about how to house. No? And the situation was just as tense as it is now. So from the start on, these allotment histories are also histories of people actually accommodating for temporary or less temporary periods of time in the gardens. And from the start, this was also a story about how the state at times permitted these dwelling practices and then also sometimes was really policing them. Um, and so you have situations across the two world wars where in the allotments um, the state actually opened up legal possibilities for people to dwell. Um, so both in the... Um, really in these, uh, well, it's, it was the aftermath of both, wars, both world wars, but also the economic crisis that Berlin experienced uh, around the Weimar Republic, um, where state actors or the local governance really made spaces for people to formally house in the allotment because it was just clear there was no other way to accommodate people. And then until 55 in Berlin, so really not so long ago, there was a decree which said you're actually allowed to house in allotment gardens. Um, and then it was only really around around like the 60s, 70s, where these allotment spaces were policed more heavily. And then also, of course, we start having a, a situation in which we need to differentiate between West Berlin and East Berlin. No? Um, and so after, um, uh, after the division of the city um, on the west side of Berlin, um, it actually uh, was a situation, we had a situation where these large modernist housing projects were built and a lot of the allotments gardens were turned, were, were, were teared down. Um, There's really a lot of struggling around people that had previously housed in the gardens and then needed to relocate. Whereas in the eastern part of the city, it was much more common that people would actually stay in the garden because also, I mean, the GDR wasn't really able to accommodate everyone in normal housing. So for them, there's also this very pragmatic necessity to actually have people house somewhere and then turn a blind eye towards the people who are housing in the allotments. Um, so, so it's really until um, reunification again that uh, that then we have a situation in the gardens where there's a much more um, there's more of an attempt to really regulate the people that from these different historical periods of time had like housing permits. There's it's 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 such an interesting situation because you have such different legal situations in the gardens. So as a result of these um, these exceptions unfilled until 55, there's people who actually have a dwelling permit. It's only around, um, I think, 1,170 people that have a formal registration, a formal allowance to actually stay in the gardens because they were registered. There's people who have been born to these, to this generation of people who have really like uh, like know nothing but the gardens as their home but who are not officially allowed to live there. There's um, housing situations where you have big, big huts that were built in these in these historical times. Also in GDR times, it was allowed to construct up to 40 square meters. So the huts are much bigger than they're actually allowed now. So you have a legal situation where the house is actually allowed and it's built for, it's built for dwelling. 
but the people don't have a dwelling permit. Um, and then because of different regulatory changes and actually how the land is used or isn't used, you have situations where you have a dwelling permit and you also um, have a house where you can live, but it's in an area where actually housing isn't allowed because it's an agricultural area. So you have, as a result of that, all these different legal settings in which people this is where the negotiations come in, don't really know how to apply the rules to the ground, no? And if we think about the state actually as being something which has formal rules and they just need to be implemented, and then there's law and the law really has like a boundary and on the one side it's legal and the other side it's illegal, this is just something which you can't use to work with when you look at these situations because you have multiple layers of formality and informality and that really overlap. And in those situations, it's obviously up to the individual bureaucrat to take a decision um, or it's a question of like temporary negotiation, which multiple people come together and they actually take a decision on the day-to-day -day basis. And I think so here, I think this understanding of the people state that we talked about before becomes much more important because the like the, the the notion of like the rigid state, the top-down state, the state with clear rules. I mean, th that's just a notion that doesn't help to work with. Yeah, so this is the historical situation of the housing um, of of the allotments, and and I think today um, we arrive at a situation um, where we can really speak about these, um, I guess, these developments across the century of allotment gardens, really not as something which has gone towards like progress in any sense. A formality is at the end of progress, but in but in a sense, um, I think it's much more different situations in which the housing market brought strains, in which there was a housing crisis and different actors reacted. And then in other times, things were re-regulated in different ways. And this is why you have really a building stock which doesn't adhere to rules, but which is still there and then people have to deal with it. So you have these different layers of historical past which also try out in this present situation, which we need to account for. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah, and I thought it was, uh, again, you show it in, a, in your book really well, this continuity and the kind of materiality of this continuity in the allotment gardens that started uh, a very long time ago and still affects the condition today. But I wonder if you could talk now a little bit more about the relationships within the colonies, because I, I thought one of the most exciting parts for me to read was the description of those relationships uh, between neighbors and their approaches to keeping peace, uh, resolving conflicts in a very specific uh, manner. And I wonder if you could also talk a little bit more about the diversity uh, of people who um, are in uh, neighbors in those allotments and how does that play into their relationships? Yeah, it's a big question. Who are these allotment gardeners who dwell in the gardens? It was a big puzzle for me from the beginning on. How can we speak about them and the multiple experiences that they have and how does that relate to the different ways in which they are legal or illegal with, in, 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 with regards to, to, to the housing stock? Um, so I came at some point 
to think about them in four groups. And of course, uh, like all groups, these are overlapping and there might be much more. Um, but if we just categorize in terms of like socioeconomic positions and necessities of dwelling and also in relation to the legal situation, um, there's this first group of people who still have dwelling permits um, and they are the numbers are um, obviously uh, decreasing because they're slowly dying out because these dwelling permits you can't inherit to someone else. So these are really people from pre from post-war times until 55 who've been given like a formal permit to dwell there. It's often old people. They've known nothing else. They've stayed their whole life in the gardens. Um, and oftentimes it's... Um, people living in quite precarious material situations still um because if not oftentimes people have be, have moved out no i mean we don't have to think about these gardens as overly luxurious even if some of these houses are actually not as bad as um as as you would think when you think about an allotment shed no um and then there's people who um really only move out over the summer um, and have a formal flat in the rental market. And these might be people who, as a result of the housing crisis, have had to reduce the amount of living space that they have. Or it might be people who just really enjoy being in the, flat, in, in the gardens all summer long. And then they move out maybe in April and they move back into their rental apartments um, in October. Um, and this also has to do a bit with the infrastructural um, situations in the gardens. In some gardens, in some allotment colonies, they turn off the water over the winter. So in these colonies, you wouldn't find people who house throughout the entire year. But in some of the gardens, people actually have their own wells, and then that becomes possible. Um, so these are uh, situations where, um, speaking from a legal perspective, it's clear that if you look at the the, the national law of allotments, this is not allowed, but oftentimes in the gardens, this is a situation which is so normalized that people really don't think about this as illegal. Um, and, and, and when um, this is a situation that is regulated, people wouldn't even think it was an issue, no, because so many people do it. Um, and then there is um, a situation in which people really enter the gardens as a result of hardship, um, and these are oftentimes people that have neither a particularly good hut, um, nor do they have a dwelling permit or any kind of legal situation which would give them grounds to stay. And these are obviously the situations which have to do most with the to do most with the crisis. But these are oftentimes also the situations which are internally most contested, you know, where people um, move into the gardens, and this is not something which finds consensus within the allotment colonies because they haven't been there as a result of kind of like historical situations or local negotiations. These might be people who really like end up there as as a result of having no other options at all. And we can speak about a bit about how how that is contested. Um, and then there's people who actually lead quite comfortable lives, um, who have maybe ownership of a big hut, um, which is well connected and is then absolutely cheap because the, the, the plots themselves cost almost nothing. And oftentimes they're quite close to nature. 
Um, and the situations, um, they might also differ according to where the colonies are. So as a result of the restitution of the former eastern colonies, there's even sometimes situations where people could um, buy their plot. So they might have like formal ownership of the land and of the hut. But they wouldn't formally be allowed to, for instance, renovate their hut because it's in an area which is um, uh, so in the outskirts and you shouldn't be housing there. So you would never get kind of a, a building permit for something which you renovate or you renew. Um, but these are oftentimes, well, I wouldn't say uh, I wouldn't say middle class, but lower middle class situations where people park their cars in front of the houses, um, where people have like a good heating system. They have telephone connections and landlines and um so these are um, really quite like comfortable lives and they're quite uh, yeah, economic in terms of, of the, the fees you actually have to pay for this. Um, and then sometimes these four groups, uh, they take place in different colonies. So these, um, these more comfortable housing situations, um, they take place more in the outskirts of the city. Uh, the people that live more precarious, well, they might only sometimes even illegally live in the hut of a friend. No, they might not even be their own hut. And then they're much more dispersed. Um, there's also a sort of geographical pattern to um, the people that have the permits. Um, so more of them are in the former Western colonies of Berlin. And then these situations of restitution, we only find them in the East of Berlin. Um, but sometimes we also find these four situations in one colony, no? So we have people who are super precarious, who just um, like lost their house in the rental market and they try to find accommodation um, in an allotment hut and they would be trying to find um, a hut which might be placed next to someone who also dwells there, but who then suddenly becomes afraid that if no newcomers come into the colony, then his or her own dwelling situation might be endangered. Um, so I found that um, even though there's a lot of solidarity, I guess, between some groups, um, people that have been there for quite long, they make sure to protect their privilege as well. Um, so I also found it a bit difficult to kind of solidly side with the struggles of the allotment holders, no? I mean, um, you want to kind of like be very on your side of your research subjects, no? And, and particularly the people that are precariously housed. Um, but we just have to be... Um, open also to look at these situations where people are really discriminating their neighbors on the basis of them being newcomers, on the basis of xenophobic stereotypes. Um, and I think here also what we spoke about earlier, no, these questions of who actually does the governing and how do we account for um, the governing that people do that are not formal state actors. I think we find these situations here where then governing and using this room for maneuver by these people that house informally um, but exclude others um, is, is really important to look at, no? Because then we find like governing mechanisms where this room for maneuver is used according to really, I mean, discriminatory practices, xenophobic stereotyping, racism. So, for instance, situations um, where where people have been displaced and want to come into an allotment colony and want to find a plot in an allotment colony, they don't even get a plot for gardening, no? Because people who already have the plot might just be afraid that they would try to do that. Um, and then on the basis of, um, well, not really knowing who they are, not really knowing their background, because they might not speak uh, German the way they do. Um, they really say you can't have a gardening plot. No, I mean, there's um, <clears throat> obviously also other colonies and there's loads of talk about like the intercultural, um, the inter intercultural attempts they make, but um, this is not the only story to say, to tell.
Exactly. And I, I think it's very important to talk about who is allowed to negotiate and kind of bend the rules and be a, a part of this discussion. But also, I thought it was interesting, at least in one example that you have in your book, it seems that it also matters how you negotiate, because there's this example of a woman who made too much noise complaining publicly in the media about her situation, and she was kind of punished for that. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, this kind of specific modus of keeping the peace and keeping the harmony between the neighbors that's also important for these uh, negotiations. Yeah, so this is a, a situation which we have to contextualize in this wider threat that the colonies experience of being um, used for housing. And this is very, very real in the allotments. There's um, a lot of talk in the media about using allotment plots for actually um, for, for actually building housing. And um, a lot of this is, I mean, really well reasoned, no? I mean, a lot of the colonies are full of concrete um, because people have expanded their houses so much. So there's not much, um, a, a, not much people left who actually do real gardening. Um, a lot of people don't pay almost nothing. A lot of the people are really middle class, no? So in a housing crisis, I think this is just an argument we have to have, no? But this is the context of these situations in which people that house in the gardens, people that dwell, really need to make sure that these dwelling practices stay under the radar to not enter into the press. And in this particular situation that you talked about, um, there, was, um, there was a woman I interviewed um, who had lived at least 20 years in her allotment hut, um, and she was told off because it was her chimney was visible and she also had extended her hut and her hut was way beyond the rules. I mean, I think she had at least like 60 square meters. The hut actually had two stories. It had quite a decent kitchen. She'd been living there for a really long time and like just slowly, slowly, slowly over the years expanded and expanded and expanded. And in this situation, um, uh, I found myself in an allotment colony where a lot of the people had been doing the exact same. So it was really, it looked quite urbanized, the situation. But it was this particular woman who lost the possibility to dwell. And this was because <clears throat> she got involved in kind of internal conflict and um, uh, and uh, didn't, didn't any longer have the support of her fellow gardeners for her to dwell. Um, and, and then because she complained against that and she actually had the German television uh, come, um, this was formally reported um, and then they took away her heating system, um, her gas heating system, and then she had to heat with electricity and that became too expensive for her. So these material registers in which people regulate, then it might not only be about the law, but it's really also about like how do you um, how do you sustain a situation which is cheap enough to actually live there for some people. So here the materiality of 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 this chimney and the heating system was really crucial for her to dwell. So the situation just became too expensive for her. Um, but I guess the learning for um, for how how rules are negotiated here is really um, also that uh, that, that, that this was a situation where the, situa the, the, the negotiation was so internal and it was, it, it was just important for everyone that things kept under the radar that once she broke that internal rule, um, she was really, I mean, uh, she was punished by that and then had to move out. Right. And I think it also leads to my next question. Um, I would like you to 
talk a little bit more about this distinction that you make between the two registers of urban transformation, between the colony and the turf. So it's basically also about how people negotiate and how these uh, forms of life become possible and viable. So maybe you could introduce this distinction for our listeners as well. Um, yeah, I I'm, I make this distinction to think about um, the registers in which we think about urban renewal and urban change in a European city. And oftentimes um, we think about the state planning systems, formal state actors actually implementing these rules. Um, and obviously in the gardens, um, we see that, no, there's a formal allotment plan, there's different ways in which um, state actors plan for the development of these sites, um, replan colonies, um, there's different uh, ways in which um, these uh, these become formally implemented in state rule. But there's also other ways which we don't typically account for um, and and they work more through those material registers that I've previously described. Um, and I want to maybe explain that through an example that I found. Um, so there was a colony in the outskirts of Berlin, in the western, uh, in the sorry, in the former eastern part of Berlin, um, where people expanded their huts um, to an extent um, where it became no longer viable, uh, or become clear it was no longer kind of formally an allotment colony. Um, and in these situations, um, the local bureaucracy then went through these allotments and kind of started to think about, like, at, at what point do we start saying that this is no longer an allotment colony because people have just expanded and expanded and expanded their huts so it really doesn't fit in this category anymore. Um, and then they, with a local judge, went through this allotment colony and just counted the huts that were too big. And in the end, they found, well, this is really not an allotment colony anymore. Um, so we can see here, even in like a European city of which we think it's kind of just regulated according to these normal planning rules, um, that there are ways in which state state uh, non-state actors, people in their everyday lives just expand and then maneuver themselves into a different legal category. And this is something which is really, really normal to think about if we think in cities about cities in, in Africa, cities in Latin America, um, this whole uh, debate about like self-construction and how people make their own rules, make their own space. But it's really not a way in which we consider urban development to take place in a European city. And this is why I was so keen on pointing this out and looking at the differences of actually who does this and who are what are the material registers by which people change their housing situations in such a way that they actually have legal effects. Now, and also think about like how do they use the law and the room for maneuver to actually, by maneuvering the law, shape how the law is then in the end, no? I mean, how, how they how they, they, they change the rules, no? Adapt the rules to actually the material practices rather than saying, oh, okay, we have the law and that is strict. And then at the result, as a result of that, um, we actually have a certain situation which is material, no? I think in this case, you can really see how the maneuvering of the rules also shapes how the state takes place and how the state is then lived in the end. Right. And maybe you could also continue uh, on this uh, topic by um, talking a little bit more about your uh, socio-legal part of, uh, of the project. So your uh, approach to the interpretative work that people do uh, to fix and stabilize the legal boundaries, as, he, as you call it. Yeah, um, I wanted there's a there's a maybe larger theoretical project behind this. Um, 
I wanted to bring debates on legal geography um, together with these debates on informality, which also speak so much about the law, but they also speak about multiple other, other registers, um, and wanted to think about how what are actually differences in these debates, what can legal geographies learn from debates on informality and vice versa. Um, so I draw very heavily on the work of Nicholas Blomley, <clears throat> And Boaventura de Sousa Santos, who thinks about um, uh, the law and um, and the ways in which you implement law much more through uh, uh, like legal peripheries, room for negotiations, um, ways in which the law is practiced. So the law as an activity rather than the law as just a piece of text. No? Um, and I think when we think about um, the legal the legal discussions we have in informality debates um, there's multiple ways in which they overlap in which we can actually take understandings of how different legal layers play out in the negotiation of informality and for instance colonias populares in mexico and uh, and think about those um, with relation to kind of the legal geographies which are typically only really used um, when thinking about european or um, or american cities um, or Australian or Canadian, or however difficult it is to start thinking in these categories now. Um, uh, so in this particular case of the allotments, I've spoken earlier a bit about the multiple layers which we actually have and which are historical, you know, the different forms of legality and how they match or don't match the ground. And in this situation, I found it really interesting to think about um, how we have situations which are in no way legal, but they're just normal according to norms, you know, and they're normal according to how bureaucrats actually act. And then um, the implementation of the law becomes an everyday struggle because the law just doesn't fit the ground. Um, and Buaventura de Santos has this really interesting um, image of kind of uh, the, the, this practices of map making where you have certain certain um, uh, scales and, and peripheries of maps and there's like an overlay between, like to just take this example of a law, no? there's a center of the law where the law really fits and then the law also has a legal periphery where what is stated in the law doesn't really apply to the material situation on the ground anymore. And there's people start to enter and negotiate. Um, and, and maybe also like to think a bit about like my claim about like the state and how it's negotiated and how formality is put into work in the everyday. Um, well, obviously that is not always to the same degree the case, no? And I would really think about that this case in the, of the allotments that I described, that this takes place at what Santos calls the legal periphery, no? Where the law really doesn't map so much on the situations of the ground and really need the situations, um, these negotiations to make the law work because it's just not applicable as it stands, no? Right. And I, I think uh, our conversation so far makes it clear for our readers that there's so much in this book and we can't really cover all of it in, in this episode. But I hope this little teaser will kind of make a, our listeners pick up the book and uh, read it. But to kind of wrap up our conversation today, maybe you could tell us what are you working on right now and what are your next projects? So um, with this work of thinking about informality as something we take from the South and we use as a lens to open up new understandings of housing, of the state, or to maybe just like open up critical lenses to think about um, the Eurocentrism of urban theory. Um, this has so far been a really 
theoretical project. Um, and I don't think because of the complications of the housing situations in the allotment gardens, that this has any practical implications for anyone anywhere. Um, this work, um, I mean, just to be a bit self-critical. Um, but but I, I, I do think that this maneuver, um, this understanding of, uh, of, of theoretical concepts from elsewhere and bringing them to Europe can have a really like open up possibilities to think about also urban practice um, uh, in, in in a more political sense, um, and what I'm what I'm thinking about a bit here is like how do we take different understandings of, for instance, property as they lived in different um, parts of the world, and start thinking about how we can learn from that about debates about property here. Um, so for instance, um, how do um, how do understandings uh, of, of property like as individual possession or ownership, how can we challenge them? How can we widen them if we open up um, our understandings to views of how property is lived elsewhere? And then what I want to be thinking about that in the future a bit more is about how we can actually um, bring those understandings into policy practice, how we can influence policy practice by opening up ways in which policy is, in which property is practiced. Um, so that's, that's one way in which this book has influenced the work that I do at the moment. Um, there's another project which I'm working on um, uh, in, in, in the context of um, climate finance or urban climate finance, uh, where this southern perspective and the question of Eurocentrism um, have taken me. And this is, um, uh, this is a project in which we look at how <clears throat> climate finance initiatives shape the work of urban bureaucracies in Mexican and in Indian cities. Um, and, and here also, um, together with a, um, the, a collective, um, uh, we're looking at uh, how to actually decenter understandings um, of what climate finance can be when we look at practices from elsewhere. So, for instance, Inora Robbins' work on really post-colonial understandings of climate finance um, or Sage Ponder's work looking at kind of racial capitalism and an understanding of climate finance from that perspective, I think do this particular work no? to, to, to really criticize like common mainstream understandings through lenses of elsewhere or different theoretical perspectives to decenter kind of these dominant understandings that we have. Um, so these are, are topics I'm really still very engaged and I want to take forward um, into the next book, maybe. <laughs> Wonderful. And uh, this sounds very interesting and I'm sure I'm not the only one looking forward to your next publications. Well, thank you for today's conversation and best of luck. Thank you so much, Anna, for having me and for the possibility to introduce my book and for the conversation we've been having. Thank you. Take care.